Welcome to the My Rules Are Better podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure of chatting with Chris Abbott once again. I should have probably said this evening I have the pleasure of chatting with Chris Abbott once again. Chris, since you were last on, you now have an email address for people that want to get in contact with you directly. Yes. Thanks for the suggestion, actually. So rpgfan at bellbell.net will get you straight in contact with Mr. Chris Abbott. Yep, and I'll try to answer as soon as I can if anybody has any questions or just we can maybe start a discussion. So since our last chat, I went to drive through RPG. I downloaded both the advanced and the deluxe revised recon rules, a bunch mm-hmm. of Palladium books featuring Australia. Also picked up Unearthed Arcana, which I had, I guess I had contact with that at some time. I remember probably my, even prior to my teens, maybe thumbing through a copy of it. The, the Thief Acrobat, I think, sticks in my mind more than anything. Is that a is that a book that you played with? Is that something that you put into your rule set when you played D anD D? When when Ar- Unearthed Arcana was actually printed, it was mostly a compendium of information that had already appeared in Dragon Magazine, mm. and we had adopted a number of things in Dragon Magazine already uh, into our game. But I don't think by the time it was actually physically published that we had purchased it for any particular reason we already had the information we wanted i suppose and it's interesting to note that the original print of unearthed arcana uh got a lot of heat from some of the players and gms because the material as presented seemed to break the game in Mm. some way for instance they had removed uh a lot of the restrictions on different races playing certain classes like orvin cleric and stuff like that which really changed the power balance i mean there were things that you you couldn't do reasonably in first edition as written because the only mages that could reach high levels and do the amazing spells like gate and wish and, uh, you know, dimensional shifting were human and humans had a fixed lifespan, very short. Uh, if you started off as a human mage, you could end up being something like 40 years old to begin with, which you were close to, middle age which would have a negative stat impact so if you were trying to cast heavy spells you had aging three years five years one year you know a high level human mage is not going to just cast a wish spell for somebody because they're going to age five years when they do it Mm -hmm. Um, so there, there were all sorts of decisions that you would have to make in terms of power and and availability of spells and um you you if you wanted a powerful spell like that cast you went to somebody and you negotiated. They wanted a special artifact in exchange for this huge risk to their life. Uh, and then you'd have to go adventuring for that. But uh, apparently there were a number of errata compiled for uh, Unearthed Arcana, but never made it into the initial print runs. So the only way you can get a revised Unearthed Arcana is to buy the premium reprint that uh, Wizards of the Coast put out a few years ago hmm. with the... Uh, the gold, the gilt edge uh, paper, <laughs> you know, so, uh, of course, since I foolishly in the past got rid of all my first edition books, along with a bunch of first edition modules, including the monochrome cover ones, which apparently, oh, well, uh, I ended up buying a premium reprint of each of the uh, core books plus the, plus the Unearthed Arcana, and then I was gifted a very nice clean copy of Deities and Demigods. Mm. Uh, the Cthulhu and Melnibone mythos in it, uh, for which I am very grateful. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of the other material for it. But yeah, um, UA has a lot of good stuff in it that we we adopted. Let's put it that way. That's the sum total of the sentence. We just didn't do it officially with the book. We did it piecemeal mm. from the. Um, and and you, said you, to drive through, you said you went to drive through RPG. Drive through RPG has everything. I mean, well, in terms of the. First edition rules, it seems to have a, a full slate. I mean, I'm not sure what version they're actually printing from that, but it looked it pretty coherent for me. I think the last, uh, if you're getting the PDFs, they would be the last edition, last print of each of the books. They've done it for first edition and second edition as well. So if you want the revised player's handbook, the revised DMG from second edition, you can pick it up there. But uh, I just wanted to let, oh, first of all, you, you were mentioning something in the last episode about uh, a third book in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles sort of series, Roadhogs, and I don't think you mentioned After the Bomb, which oh. might be the 
you were looking for. Yes. Uh, well, yeah. after the bomb, mutants of the Yucatan, mutants down under. But yes, after the bomb, I think may have had some Australian references in it. I can't recall, but I think certainly that rule set was just so fascinating. And when I picked it up again, I had I had a recollection that it was like disturbingly violent and really almost um, not pornographic, but you know that kind of that element that was really part of the 1985 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle books had been explored to a great depth through the role playing game. And I remember when I first picked it up as a kid, I was kind of a bit transfixed by how dark it really was. Well, the original comics were quite mm. quite violent. I mean, uh, the turtles and Casey Jones they were they knocked the crap out of people. They weren't. It wasn't you know the cleaned up uh, Mother Goose style of uh, <laughs> combat. It was Brothers Grimm certainly. But I think and- Sabita took that even further. I think the uh, kinds of there the were torture scenes in some of the books, which I remember as a child just looking at with some kind of dismay, but certainly going back as an adult and seeing the same torture scenes, I thought to myself, this is really very curious that this was part of this role-playing game, but it was a darker, you know, I think that was the distinction because certainly by the early nineties and the films, the turtles had rebranded themselves as, as you say, kind of kids toys and this kind of stuff. So there was certainly an artistic direction that Sabita and, you know, the other folk that wrote for the turtles in the role-playing game sense took. And I thought it was uh, compared to certainly Robotech and a lot of the, I don't know, I didn't really get into rifts enough to get a sense of that. But there was something really quite dark and nasty in the Turtles role-playing game, which, yeah, anyway. There there were a lot of products that came out at the time that were uh, pushing various corners of the envelope that Mm. that had been formerly round and uh, sort of softened. So speaking of PDFs... Mm -hmm. Are you aware of uh, organizations or, or offerings from Humble Bundle or Bundle of Holding? No, I'm not. Oh, I shouldn't have told you then. Okay. I'm sorry. I apologize in advance. Very good. Humble Bundle uh, is a uh, website that offers periodic deals on groups of PDFs, and they cover gaming, they cover digital photography, they cover programming, they cover uh, – then they go into actual physical software real software so there's game bundles with uh classic games and uh new games that are that are well you know this this century at least mm-hmm. and i picked up several uh collections there from frog god games kobold press and lone shark um which cover a whole bunch of supplementary material for D fifth edition mm-hmm. and also books on game design game theory puzzles all sorts of things that i could incorporate into rpgs but the one that's going to really hurt your pocketbook is from Bundle of Holding, and they've been going on for several years now. I've picked up complete collections, virtually complete collections of Space 1889, mm. Palladium Fantasy RPG, mm-hmm. which is the core rules, the two through seven books for supplements, the Arms of Nagash Tor, the Judge's Screen, and uh, Cardboard Heroes style uh, figures, a full Lamentations of the Frame, pr- Flame Princess bundle, uh, the Dark Eye, which is a English translation of a German RPG that started out in 1984 time mm. frame. Full Mutant Year Zero, which is a new, uh, newer product from uh, Modiphius, including uh, Gen Lab Alpha, which is their anthrop- anthropomorphic uh, animals uh, uh, mutant section, and the editions one through three of Early Champions. And these bundles are typically, you know, ten, twelve, fourteen books. Uh, for maybe twenty twenty five dollars US. Okay, and you can get these deals. They they come up every month or so. They're they're on online regularly, and um, I, I look at the list of the ones I've missed and sort of regret missing out on them. But they'll come around again in a, in another year or so. They'll probably add a couple more titles to the bundle and reoffer it. So one of the topics we didn't get to reach last discussion was associated with writing your own rules house rules, and house adventures. And it's interesting that you make this distinction because certainly I think house, let's start with house rules. (laughs) Because house rules, for me, even outside of role-playing games, board games, any kind of game, house rules for me are just really, really critical. And it's interesting because 
I was thinking back at all, and certainly when one gets married, one occasionally plays board games with one's spouse. Maybe it could be an Australian thing. I'm not sure. But from your perspective, can you talk a little bit about house rules in role-playing games? Uh, yeah, uh, probably the first the first example when we when I first sat down and we were told we were going to generate characters was the DM that was there insisted it was three d six rolled once in order mm. and that's how you're going to generate your character and it wasn't until we had our own copies of the player's handbook and the DMG that we found that there were other options including forty six drop the lowest and arrange them as you like which is what we eventually adopted. Uh, although I do like the new fifth edition uh, point by methodology for for generating mm-hmm. characters, because at the outset you cannot have a stat above seventeen, yes, uh, which I think is okay. Now, what we did in early days is we we learned about critical hits. You know, if you roll a natural twenty, it's not just an automatic hit; it's a it's a hit, and you do double damage. We just had the double damage. It wasn't. Sorry, we did maximum damage. There wasn't even a doubling effect. It was just maximum damage. So you automatically, if you were hitting with a long sword, you did D8 plus your strength. So you got maybe 11 or 12 damage right off the bat. And it wasn't until later editions came out that talked about critical doubling of damage and rolling, doubling the first die and stuff like that. I heard a really interesting uh, one that came up the other day. They were talking about using an escalation die during combat. So you'd put a, a D6 down on the table... After the first round, the first round of combat was straight. Everything was as written in your your character sheets and the rules. Mm-hmm. The second round of combat, you turned up the, the the first pip on the d6, and everybody got a plus one bonus to hit in the second round. And the third round, you rolled it to the two pips, and everybody got a two plus two to hit. So basically, what you're doing is you're you're shortening up all these combats that can go hours and hours and hours because by the seventh round, everybody's got plus six to hit. Mm. But that seems to be counterintuitive to the way a battle would really be played. Like, that maximizes the fun, but that doesn't account for exhaustion and various other things. Exactly. But here, now I'm going to step on your toes. Okay. Step on your toes here because I'm going to delve into your your bailiwick here. Every combat system, well, every rule system by itself is an abstraction. Certainly. You're not looking at at what's really happening. in, In your case, you'd know this. You create parameters that you then simulate some mm-hmm. events or effects. So every combat system is is an abstraction, and D and D is arguably one of the worst abstractions of a combat system because it's hit points and armor class. It's how how difficult it is for you to hit somebody, and then how much damage do you take? If you had ninety hit points and you're full strength and you're you're battling away, you're the same level of effectiveness all the way down to one hit point you're still hitting full strength and full dexterity and full everything. And you can keep going as long as nobody takes that last hit point away, you're still alive and still active. Yes. And, and that's nuts. Yes. Because the longer you go, the more tired you become, the less, uh, the less strong, the blows you make, the harder it is for you to, to get through somebody's guard and the weaker you feel. And that's, but we don't simulate that for the most part because People don't like that. It's not fun. I think it's fun. <laughs> I am tired of fun. I love things like that. I love yes. keeping track of stuff like that, but most people don't. So the escalation die is a, a way to get through the tedium by making it progressively more uh, easy to, to finish off your opponent. And I don't, I, uh, while I don't uh, necessarily like that methodology, I can see why a lot of people would like to adopt it to shorten up, especially in something like 4th edition D&D, where you get into combat and eight hours later you're still in combat. So, But that's an example of a house rule that people are adopting in order to streamline portions of the game that don't necessarily appeal to them. I mean, from my perspective, what I would like to see is a certain amount of strategy early on, which I think is something that I've used the just playing chaos rule set as a means of getting a discussion going about these kind of things. But in Just Playing Chaos and RuneQuest and these kind of games, because your health is put over your entire body in various locations, if you're struck in the arm or the leg or, you know, the chest or the head, there are various deficiencies that occur through combat, which reduce your ability. So you have to be strategic coming into combat associated with finding the, the biggest, baddest, <laughs> and doing what needs to be done to them. 
And strategically I... also, those with ranged weapons, the sneaky, you know, the sneaky ones also need to be thought of here. And I mm-hmm. think what's interesting is that so many of these things are, as you say, a reaction to D&D. D&D was the initial introduction. It may have been the, you know, the, the first, the, the gateway into this realm. But increasingly, I mean, I played straight 5th edition D&D for 18 months at work. Mm-hmm. Straight 5th edition. I, a very, very limited house rules. Sometimes through exhaustion, I gave people hits when they just hadn't quite rolled right. You know, but basically played the rules straight. And what happened after 18 months was that I had characters that were just unplayable. I mean, <laughs> they were, they, they had leveled up to a point where literally, and they had weapons and, you know, there was the tank. He went and did the maximum damage. There was the bard. He did his thing. You know, there were all these characters as a cleric and all these kind of, there were characters throughout that just had leveled up to a point. And I thought, what's the next level here? Do they go on an astral plane? <laughs> Are they fighting yes. deities? I mean, well, this is this is uh, I can contrast this because when we when we finally got our great our great DM back in the day and we started playing every Friday night, five hours every Friday night for a year and a half, plus the odd Saturday. So conservatively, somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 hours of play. Yes. We made it to seventh level. Yes. My dwarf still had a 17 strength. And he had a dexterity that was so terrible that he, at seventh level, he failed his his dex check and fell off and ended up dying at a really awful point in the game. But yes. it, was, it was there was a couple of characters that were eighth level because at the time you had um, first edition has different amounts of ex uh, xp for each Seven. class. So there were the thieves, of course, advanced the quickest. So they, I think, we had an eighth or ninth level thief. And my fighter was seventh level, and then somebody had an eighth level cleric or something like that. But I, I, I wasn't a super, uh, I wasn't a super being. I wasn't a demigod at seventh level. After eighteen months of so four hundred hours of play, I was seventh level. I think it's got to do also with the kinds of conflict that you're involved with now, because of the way the work game was played, and because I was doing it with miniatures, and I had miniature rangers, and I wanted to tell a very particular story through it. There was a lot of battling, and mm. we're going to talk about that sometime this evening. I have murder hobo down as a definite <laughs> topic here. But there was a lot of battling. There was a lot of killing. There was a lot of meatbag points, XP, orcs plenty. And I even did the rules associated with increasing the strength and point values of the creatures as they as the levels increased, just to make it like remotely interesting. And I had it in the narrative that they started off with you know, very spongy goblins and orcs, and then they got into kind of more militarized goblins and orcs, and then they got into the elitely militarized <laughs> goblins and orcs. And goblins, gnolls. Exactly. So ogres, I followed right? the narrative precisely, but it just it became me- mechanistic and boring. And I think from my perspective, it it became the satire of the worst elements of D&D. Now, for the folks that were playing, they absolutely loved it. It was a big thing yep. because... Many of them were, I mean, there were a couple of power gamers that came in and tried to play power gaming stuff, but many of them were just complete novices. They were yep. just coming in and having a good time. And that was wonderful in that setting. But, well, yeah. You can, and you can take, you can make anything more gritty and more realistic. Mm. Like if you look at Top Secret SI, the mm-hmm. special intelligence, which mm-hmm. was the 87 print, they had hit locations. So your arms, your legs, your torso, and your head all had. Uh, a percentage of your total hit points, and you never got more hit points mm-hmm. than what you started with. And if you got struck in an arm uh, and you exceeded the number of points in that arm, that arm became useless. If mm-hmm. you exceeded by double, the arm was basically destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you got chest or uh, or head and you exceeded it, you were unconscious or you mm-hmm. were dead. Simple as that. You know, in, in Classic Traveler, you have uh, your stats are your hit points. So if you did strength, dexterity, and endurance were maximum F or 15 each, the maximum hit points you could have would be 45, but you'd be a demigod at that point. You'd mm-hmm. be this, you, you are the premium specimen of whatever. There, there are no higher values. And as you take strikes, your individual stats are reduced. If one stat is reduced to zero, you're unconscious. If two stats reduced to zero, you're severely wounded, and three to zero, you're dead. Mm. Now, explicitly in the rules, it says that even if you reduce a stat 
two below. Like if your strength was a was a an A, a ten, and uh, you you took five points on your strength and it was reduced to five, and you were swinging a cutlass, which requires a nine strength to to use. <laughs> It, it says explicitly in the, in the 1977-1981 rules, it says that the reduction doesn't affect your ability to do things. So when your dex is reduced, it doesn't affect your aim. When your endurance is reduced, it doesn't affect your ability to land blows. But if you wanted to make classic Traveler gritty, then you could just apply uh, the reduction to any of those three stats to affect your ability to aim. Your dex, you get hit dexterity, now your hand-eye coordination is gone and you can't aim well. Uh, you get hit in strength. You can't lift the big sword, or you can't mm. you can't uh, carry the the power armor anymore, or whatever. Right? You could do something like that. So that's a house rule that could be easily applied, and it would change the entire tone of the game. Traveler's already pretty deadly. When you get into combat in Traveler, and somebody's got a PGMP and it does four or five dice of damage, you're you're in big trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, because one hit and you're a smoking crater. It's the, it's the <laughs> Boots with just the wisp of smoke coming out of the top of the, the space boots, right? Yes. Most people don't like that kind of house ruling. They don't want to make it more gritty. They want to make it more fun. Mm. I think certainly, I mean, just playing Chaos uses very, I mean, I, I hadn't, up until now, I actually downloaded the top secret PDF, which is actually a modern rule set, which is adapted from the uh, 80s version. But just like Chaos does have, as you say, five up location based hit points, and never increasing. So, well, never increasing unless a wound has been tended to or these kind of things. Right. But that forces a strategic level of play, which actually one of the things I find fascinating about the gameplay is that I will give my players time as they enter into a conflict situation to actually plan a strategy. And there are one or two people that have very particular strategic views. They, are, are strangely, are not the ones carrying the beefiest weapons. They're the ones that typically are kind of midway through. But at the start of conflicts, they will always say, okay, we need to get together. We need to work out what the strategy is here. And I always give them that time because that, while not necessarily being, you know, simulated correctly, at least gives a, the, the improved gameplay and improved kind of sociability element, um, which I'd certainly want irrespective of the deadliness of the rule set. I did want to talk a little bit about house adventures. That, I think, is a gateway. House rules are interesting because you need a certain degree of maturity of the players. But one of the things I did very early on was create, within existing rule sets, create my own adventures. And it was such an important thing as a child where, you know, a module was four or five weeks worth of lawn mowing money. Even <laughs> the t- those things were incredibly expensive in Australia. So it's yes. far easier just to get your you know, old used typewriter paper or whatever, draw together a few maps, put in a few, you know, A, B, C, D, A equals, you know, how many orcs or gold or what have you. Can you talk a little bit? Because, I mean, you created a planet and a bunch of adventures around that planet. You created a city within the planet. You created a social hierarchy. Can you talk a little bit about your early house adventures and, and as that matured as your kind of gameplay? interests matured. The earliest house adventure I can remember, I I actually typed out on my grandfather's Remington portable uh, and and it was a horrible pastiche of all of the worst things that were available in dungeons. Um, it, it was littered with traps. Mm. It was littered with <laughs> monsters that had you know endless quantities of gold and, and uh, artifacts. Yes. It, it was the I'll I'll use the the phrase that was popular at the time. It was a Monty Hall dungeon, hmm. right? Uh, uh, let's make a deal. Come on down. Do you want what's behind number one? Yes. Or you take the curtain. Um, it was very much like that. And I was probably thirteen at the time, four, maybe fourteen. So it's kind of nineteen eighties, early eighties time frame, nineteen eighty one. And I ran the guys through it, and everybody loved it because we didn't know any better we didn't have any nuance we didn't have we we just the the modules we'd played to date consisted of sort of b2 b1 Mm. maybe one of the a series uh which was the start of the slave lords series but uh nothing or maybe x1 which was a basic module and we hadn't developed any sort of real uh uh sense of uh uh consistency and and narrative at that point in time Mm. it was just 
why are you talking to my experience points? I've got to kill this thing and take its stuff. Yeah. That's the murder hobo scene. <laughs> it's, you're, you're battling against a list of numbers on a page. There was no real um, cinematic description about what you were encountering or what was going on. It was very much, uh, very much a, a comparison of of even cells on a spreadsheet. Well, my my value of strength is higher than his value of strength, so I'm going to win all the contests of strength, et cetera. And um, but as we went on, uh, my friend Mike, he he developed a city for his own games because during lunch hour at school we played uh, alternately. We had different uh, DMs playing D and D. So one day Mike would run his campaign, another day I would run my campaign, and, D&D, and then Brian would run his traveler uh, campaign uh, during the lunch hour. So for at least four days a week we played at school during the lunch hour, which was a full hour. And then Friday nights we would play five hours D and D. And then we would trade off and go to somebody's house. And maybe on a Saturday or Sunday, we'd be playing D and D or some other game again. Mm. It was really obsessive behavior for yes. us, but it kept us out of trouble. It kept us well read. It kept us, uh, just, it, it occupied our time in what at, the, at that stage didn't seem particularly productive, but has in retrospect proved to be very valuable pastime mm-hmm. because you're, you're expanding your mind. You're, you're acting the, the joke about the resume. When you put down the resume, Oh, negotiated trade deals, uh, uh you know, organized large for, uh, forces in, and, and, and you put this all down and it's all D and D stuff that you've done as here, you know, rescue, yes. you know, and you, you vamp it up for your resume. Uh, but Mike had developed, he thought that he would like to have a city on his planet that was like a, 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 a trading crossroads, center of uh, knowledge and, and, and teaching, and uh, everybody could come together, and it was sort of a neutral space. So he created a city called Jeru, which he based on Jerusalem, and he had all of these, he, he took the historical uh, facts and created parallels that sort of fit in the the, the races and classes in D&D, and he documented this extensively for his games. And it was always, we spent more times doing urban adventuring with him than probably anything else. There were rare if ever we went dungeon delving or wandering around the wilderness. It was a lot of urban activity with his campaign. And uh, I had worked on my, my, my own planet and I developed the, the city of Cypher, and I developed all the environs around it, and I, I had the, the village of Barrowvale, or the area where Barrowvale was, and uh, the local uh, the local uh, keep was on an island in the middle of the lake that was right next to the the town, and there was a forest. And all I mean, it was brilliant to sit down and try and figure out how a planet would be uh, come to be, or the the features of the planet and not do something that was completely insane, like uh, a lake of lava right next to an (laughs) ocean, you know, you'd have to figure out the transitions and you looked obviously at real geography Mm -hmm. and real chemistry and real physics. And you were trying to create something that was believable and engaging. Right. And that was the the key thing was the engaging. If if people looked at it and said, that's stupid, I don't want anything to do with that. I mean, what, this is insane. Why would I come back and play in this next week? But we we learned that the the aspects that we wanted to capture were things that were interesting and compelling and how could we do that how could we develop this and making house adventures became really the the modules fell by the wayside or became uh just research uh documents where you would look through and find elements that you liked maybe a a, a building or a temple or a uh, a group of uh, people in a cult or something, and you would lift that and and insert that into your own uh, in your own own setting and sort of blend the edges, like photoshopping at a at a macro level, right? So many books of you know worlds created through this period of time in my life. I found, I mean, I only have a small subset of of my books from this time period. I have one of the earliest when I was 11. I wrote a rule set based on my reading of Roman legions and, you know, Roman conquest and these kind of things. And it's fascinating just seeing an 11-year-old handwriting, like really scruffy (laughs) handwriting, 
<laughs> large, <laughs> large typeface. And just the amount of time and full, you know, 200 odd pages worth of this writing. Mm-hmm. And this is one of probably 50 of these books. And I have small smatterings. I wrote a rule set called Britannia when I was about 13. And we played this rule set for probably two years. And I think I've got that book somewhere. That's one of the ones where I was thinking I should scan some of these up and put them in the, the feed just to illustrate this thing. It's it's not titled Rules Britannia, is it? No. That okay. was the joke. That was no. the joke. Okay. <laughs> there was a subtle joke there. But that was based on from 600 to about 900 AD in the UK. I mean, obviously... You've got the Norman, you know, Viking, you've got the Saxons, you've got the various other bits and pieces. But it was very much based on the notion that a peasant could, you know, fight their way up at least into, like, some kind of noble court at some level. And it was actually very anti-magic. There was a period of time in my gaming where I thought, actually, the real world was considerably more interesting. It's funny... There's, uh, I can't, what's it called? The Last Kingdom. There's a TV show on Netflix called The Last Kingdom, which catches this period perfectly, but obviously through a narrative. And mm-hmm. it, it is fascinating to me that a 12 year old, a 13 year old in Australia could get this level of fascination associated with this time period. <laughs> You're, you're in school. You're doing all your assignments. You're yes. you're trying to achieve some academic standing. You don't want to have low marks because you're going to end up with remedial work on top of that. So you have to maintain at least uh, a respectable level of grades while you're doing all of this other stuff. And we had our our backpacks. Well, it wasn't really backpacks at the time. They hadn't come into fashion. But uh, sports bags, right? The Adidas bag mm-hmm. was the probably the iconic uh, carry all of the time. We had we were ripping the straps off of these things because we had so many binders and so many hardcover books stuffed in them that that they were you know I swear there were guys walking around with one arm longer than the other after yeah. high school it was crazy but yeah, as you say magic magic we could I particularly had a problem with the magic system in D and D it just seemed I know it's it's supposed to be based on Jack Vance's uh, Dying Earth magic system or the, what he describes. But I've read The Dying Earth, and I don't see it. Rialto Rialto the Fabulous, Rialto the Magnificent, I don't see it translating into what I I saw in first edition D&D. And I hated it. And I tried desperately to to make, well, nobody wanted to play a magic user, because at first level, you had no armor, you had four hit points, maybe six if you were really, really lucky. There was another house rule for you. We had a house rule that at first level, you got max hit points. Mm. You didn't roll. Wow. So you you couldn't really have a, a wizard or a mage with uh, one hit point, even if you had a 14 constitution. So you'd end up with at least four and maybe six if you had a 16 or 18 constitution. Um, but nobody wanted to play a mage. You had no armor. You had crap hit points. You had uh, you had one spell if you were, you know, the, and you could have a dagger, a dart, or a staff for a weapon. Hmm. You were, and and it came to be known, I guess, more recently, you were the torchbearer. You you held the thing aloft, and you stayed out of the way so that you didn't get killed. And I hated that. You memorized one spell. You said at the beginning of the day, oh, what spell am I going to take? Well, I'm going to take magic missile. (laughs) Because if you didn't take magic missile, the rest of the party would string you up. Yes. If you took read magic, you were as good as dead. They were not going to, they were not going to forgive you for that. And so you took the spell, you memorized it. And then during the day, if that wasn't the one that was any good to you, you didn't use it the whole game at most you could do. If you fired off a magic missile, you get what, uh, a D four damage in, in basic you had to aim, but in advanced, you didn't have to, You, you, you automatically hit, but I got so fed up with this. I said, I've got to do something about this. So I sat down and I actually wrote and had published in a, a real low tier, nobody's ever heard of it, magazine <laughs> called The Frontline. I had a point-based spell system for D&D. I, I developed it using the existing rules. So each spell level was equivalent to a point. So a first level spell was one point, second level was two point, third, three, et cetera, et cetera. So your ability to get spells, if you looked at the table 
in the in the player's handbook, at first level you had one first level spell. At second level you had two first level spells. So I translated those to points. At second level you had two points. Mm. You could theoretically, if you could find a second level spell that you knew or could learn, you would have the uh, enough points to cast a second level spell, which normally you wouldn't be able to do until third level uh, by the rules. But because you were under level for it, you could burn up those points and have nothing happen. It was about a 50% chance of nothing happening and the points are gone or a 50% chance of it going very badly for you and, and actually backfiring, not only using the spell points up, but causing harm to you or your party. And I documented the whole thing and it was about four or five uh, letter sized pages and sent it in and had published. And I used that and people would, people would play a magic user because they, you didn't have to memorize something at the beginning of the day. If you had a spell list of first level spells that were say seven in number and you had two spell points, you could cast any two of those spells or any, any one of them twice during the day. And during your rest, you would recover spell points based on how many hours you slept. Mm. So at first level, second level, two points, you slept eight hours, you would get a hundred percent of your points back. If you slept four, you get 50% back. So you'd have one point. You could still cast a spell after four hours, but you could pick any one. You had all of these in your head at any one time and whichever was most appropriate, you could, you could release. And oddly enough, in the later editions of D and D, they have spell points and spell slots mm. instead of the memorization, the rote memorization and the instant forgetting of the spell. Yes. And I, th- and I published this in 1984, I think 1983, 1984. Certainly the recent biographies, it, it, I mean, there's a single biography of Gygax, but there are books around the history of D and D. They all note that he had the most trouble with the magic user as a, concept and it's interesting actually what you say because that the nature of the magic missile and in particular its use to immediately hit and the uh, these are documented in terms of Gygax's history with his own problems as you say of playing a magic is like it's just not something that people want to play in a game to start off with and you end up either having situations where you need a bunch of npcs to protect the magic user or you need an NPC that is a magic user and then people just play, you know, regular fighters and what have you. But I wanted to ch- change this just a little bit because one of the things that interested me, the original just playing Chaos Rules before I started playing them at work and very much based on Australia in the 1990s was, we talk about magic, let's move that aside, weapons were very difficult to get. And the original... Just Playing Chaos rule set was based on very limited access to weaponry, very limited access to anything where you would engage with conflict because you would be immediately killed. And one of the things that I liked, certainly in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a movement towards really heavy narrative, sometimes they were called freeform role-playing games, where actual battling conflict was very, very sparsely generated and it was far more about role playing like in terms of just creating these roles and working out psychologies and ways of getting out of situations and i think what you've described with regards to the murder hobo paradigm has changed a lot as well have you ever played like non-violent role-playing games i'm most most of the purely narrative games i'm not a super big fan of (laughs) i don't know whether i'm just a a grognard at heart or uh, my old school is just too strong to to get into the, the the diceless games or the narrative games. I have played episodes or scenarios of of Top Secret, for instance, Top Secret SI. When I when I say Top Secret, I always mean that that edition from '87. Uh, Certainly, the original one, as far as I'm concerned, is just an unplayable mess. I own it, but I I never liked it. Mm. I've played entire scenarios where there's been one or two gunshots in the entire scenario. Mm-hmm. There might have been some fisticuffs, uh, a little martial arts sort of uh, uh, action where you're trying to, you know, you do that that classic uh, uh, TV or movie scene where, where somebody comes up and hits you on the back of the head with the, uh, with the butt of the pistol or, or yes. with a, you know, and it instantly knocks you out, but doesn't do any more damage. 
I'd love to be able to, to, to understand the mechanic behind that because there isn't a mechanic that allows you to do that. You can either not knock the person out and they turn around and slug you or you give them a concussion and <laughs> send them to the hospital. There's yeah. no in between. They don't wake up 10 minutes later tied securely to a chair. Uh, I also played a variant of the gumshoe rules, which I think was Trail of Cthulhu uh, at one of the local cons uh, last year or the year before. And there, I don't think I picked up a die the whole game. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody picked up a die the whole game. It was all narrative. And while it was a well run from the DM perspective, he did a really good job. Uh, the story was interesting. It was Cthulhu, and we all died horribly. And when Sane died horribly in the end, which is the the you know that's sort of the turnoff for me. Mm. I think playing a straight gumshoe game. Uh, that's the Robin D. Law, Robin D. Law, writer and game designer Robin D. Laws, I think, did Gumshoe. And I think it would be fun to play with that rule system because you get you you pick up the clues. There's no rolling to find the clues. You always find the clues. And there's usually multiple ways to get the same clue. If you miss it in one scenario, one section or one scene of the, the adventure, you will get it at some other point because the tr- the object of the adventure is not to prevent you from getting the clues. It's to allow you to get the clues and for you to figure them out and then mm-hmm. continue the story. Uh, and I think that'd be great. I'd love to play in a, in a sort of a gumshoe game. Uh, I'd even do bubble gumshoe, which is the kids were <laughs> sound. It sounds like a lot of fun. It's sort of, uh, almost, a, a Scooby-Doo kind of vibe, right? I'd get away with it. If it wasn't for you kids sort of thing, but you know, Amber diceless and other games like that. I don't really get fiasco or, uh, that sort of game I did. I, there's, I need to have some interaction with the mechanics that is a random element. I suppose I don't, it's not just, well, my stat is higher than their stat. So I automatically win. No, there has to be a chance. The underdog has to have a chance to win. Sometimes how do you, I know in some games you can, you can add, you can, uh, what do you call that? Activate or invoke certain aspects of your character in order to gain advantage narratively mm. but i i don't think i am sufficiently adept as a as a storyteller to to weave that in without some thought beforehand so it's going to be a real staccato stuttery yes thing to be smooth card action is an interesting without dice but use of cards to promote actions where you can either strategically organize cards or these kind of things i mean there are many dynamics within here that are explorable without the use of dice. But I do agree, I think dice rolls are needed in in almost all circumstances. But it interests me, the experimentation with role-playing that occurred in that time period where people, particularly, I guess, in social groups, I mean, it would probably be a lot easier to have a Cthulhu. And Cthulhu is an interesting genre because, yes, I certainly remember the Cthulhu-based no no dice, no paper games. And yeah, it is a fascinating mind space because there, as you say, it's kind of interesting, dark horror. I like some of the First World War elements of the Cthulhu. Now, obviously, it's all polluted by steampunk and various other concepts. <laughs> so it's all, it's all now the purest element that we're talking about here is all completely ruined. But before, before we conclude it, I wanted to talk a little bit about and certainly I, when I write rules, when I think about rules, I think about player archetypes. And that I think is something that I always, I have kind of three or four main player archetypes that I consider when I'm writing rules to make sure that these, that they all get different things out of, but none of them are advantaged through their various behaviors. And when I put down archetypes in the notes, you thought it meant character archetypes. Well, literary sort of things like the the hero, the mother figure, the the villain, right? Uh, You meant something else, obviously. As you described your first interaction with role-playing, the the gentleman holding the book or magazine, you know, looking in disgust, saying (laughs) something, and then quickly going back to the book. It's not a magazine, it's a game. Yes. (laughs) I have have that archetype there. And it's funny, actually, at work, who falls into that category? It's funny when you have these archetypes, finding people that you interact with on a regular basis, who's going to fit into these archetypes here? And what I found fascinating in particular was uh, we had an occasional player who only really played for a couple of games, 
But when she got involved, she completely dominated everything. And it was very strange because she even created house rules on the spot, which I was, I'm normally like one character at particular times can pick and choose. And, you know, we kind of talk about, you know, here's a mechanic. Sometimes I don't do it explicitly. Sometimes I just say roll a dice and I roll a dice. And She said explicitly, what are the rules associated? She had a stone game that she introduced as a means of ripping off the other players from money. And she, she generated this rule set and then okayed it with me and okayed it with the players and then proceeded to rip off one player in particular quite horrendously. So, I mean, you have all these archetypes of people. In order to engage in role-playing, I think you usually fit into a certain, you know, certain archetypes there. And what I find fascinating is you always have, they're, they're never the one that you would initially pick, but... Uh, you know, the, the Dragonborn character or uh, be it the, you know, the thief acrobat, the, the character that finds this very particular, you know, thing within the sphere and then obsesses about it. You have the antithesis player, which I always really find very fascinating. I had one fellow I used to play with who would always play a female character that was exactly the opposite of him and used this in some kind of strange, I mean, there's all the strange psychology within, within role-playing games as well. To me, if we're talking about character ar- archetypes, there is the murder hobo, mm-hmm. which we, we've touched on, and all they're interested in is breaking in. They, they have no home. They have no background. Their family is all dead. There's nothing the DM can do to hold them or, or incorporate them into the story. Uh, all they do is break into the dwellings of other creatures, kill them, and take their stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what they enjoy doing. It's the amassing of a fortune or uh, a number of entries on their sheet that they're interested in. It's it's very video gamey for them. It's, it's the collection of, I have more stuff than you do, so therefore I win. But it's my responsibility as a good GM in these circumstances to ruin their day in a very <laughs> profound and exact way. I mean, I think my favorite <laughs> thing, and I'll, I'll say this, it's about British soap operas, and I'm Reimmersing myself in British soap operas for what reason I don't know. But the thing in British soap operas is you take a character, you give them a defined goal, and you put every possible obstacle in their way between them getting to their defined goal. And I think there's an element which I, that completely describes my view associated with, certainly from a GMing perspective, creating adventures and scenarios that will keep people, you know, you create a goal and then mysteriously, the characters end up going completely orthogonal to that. They're going in one adventure and then another adventure comes along. You know, they're heading one way and then mysteriously, for some unknown reason, like there's wars. I love adding wars into adventures because then you have things, you have armies that are amassing that either the players are affiliated with or unaffiliated with that are moving through the same space as the players. And sometimes they need to find allegiances with that sometimes they have to avoid them sometimes they have to find you know various means of evading through this so there are so many different twists and turns that you could keep the murder hobo uh, archetype if one exists in, in my description keep they amass a huge amount of wealth and then mysteriously they have to put it on a donkey because they've amassed a huge amount of wealth and they can't carry around the huge amount of wealth so they get the donkey then something horrible happens to the donkey well, you you trade all the gold in for jewels, and then you can carry the jewels in a pouch. I mean, what's wrong with you? No, I at your 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 interjection of war. When we were we were doing our eighteen month campaign, when we emerged from delving into this keep, it was Windermere Keep, and we were we were down in the in the nether regions of it. We came up about level five at one point, and to only to find the keep was actually occupied by a local lord mm. who had an army and he was trying to fight off because it was by the, uh, by a coastline and there were ships and there were all sorts of things. And we came up in the middle of this and they're like, who the hell are you guys? Where, where did you come from? Well, we're, you know, it's, this is our place. What are you doing here? No, we, we've taken it over by an order of the Lord. Uh, uh, and you're going to, we're going to find out whether you're with us or against us. And eventually we ended up because we were, higher level at fifth level than some of the uh, intermediates in the military. We were actually brought in. Mm. We found out that, okay, this is a worthy cause and we've got to protect this area because we live in this area too. And it's going to be a big issue. We're going to lose our favorite 
village. We're going to lose our favorite inn. We're going to lose our favorite blacksmith. The whole shooting match. <laughs> so we ended up being drawn into a, lar- a much larger uh, conflict. And we the the DM employed the mass battle rules, and we had siege engines, and there were trebuchets and malvoisin, and the whole shoot match. It was it was just, and he had miniatures for all this. We we normally had miniatures even just to to show our our marching order. And I, I don't care if there, you don't use miniatures for anything else on the table. Bring something to represent your character. Put it in order so we know if there's something going on. Who's who's in the firing arc and whatnot. Mm. But that injecting that into the game was really fun. We it was something we had never done, which was mass combat. Yes, uh, you know the sort of chainmaily blend D and D battle system from Basic and uh, some of his own uh, uh, melding that he did to blend the edges, and that's fantastic. I mean, talk about throwing everybody for a curve. We weren't expecting that, and it <laughs> ended up being four or five nights solid of dealing with these mass combat and these ranks upon ranks of, of, uh, goblin, goblin kind from the bottom, kobold, goblin, orc, mm-hmm. hobgoblin, you know, I mean, it, it's usually one-on-one or small mm-hmm. faction with individual decisions made by the players or, and, and we have, uh, a couple of guys in the area. I've got some, some of the warlord miniatures for their uh, samurai uh, mm-hmm. uh, test honor game, and I've got the battle tech figures and stuff like that. So there's there are a few people that play skirmish level things, but I don't really hang out with anybody who does the the sand sand table full of <laughs> squads or or companies of men uh, acting on mass. And uh, there, but I did find out there is a uh, there is a con in the area that that happens once or twice a year that does that's heavily focused on, on wargaming in those aspects. And I'm planning to go this year. I just need to check the times and, and make sure I get to it. My name is Tom Bubbly and I have a problem with miniatures. I have a <laughs> miniature problem, which extends greatly. It's my wife would assert frequently that it borderlines an addiction, but my love of tiny little metal, and I have to be metal. The plastic ones just don't cut it. Little oh, metal figures. And the, the breadth and diversity of these things is an incredible problem for me. I would like to have a chance to discuss this in great detail with you, Chris Abbott, when we next talk. Thank you very much for a wonderful discussion this evening. Folks listening in, if you'd like to get in contact with Chris, rpgfan at bellbell.net is the way to contact him. Mine is bravo alpha romeo, bravo alpha lima echo tango barbele at gmail.com. This is a word-of-mouth podcast. If you like what Chris and I are doing here this evening, please tell your friends, pass on the audio. Our conversations only get more, uh, <laughs> more you know, diverse and, uh, and unique as they go on, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure this evening. Thank you very much for having the chance to chat. Thank you for having me, Tom. I've still got pages of stuff here that we haven't covered. Believe and me. And no doubt there'll be more. <laughs> yes. Anyway, maybe next week if your furnace holds up. So... Look forward Mm. to talking to you soon, Chris. Take care. Cheers, Tom.